Thanks for tuning in to Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. I'm DJ Nate C., host of the Heavy Metal Sewing Circle, a weekly inclusive program that presents the best hard rock and heavy metal deep cuts from the 1960s to the present. One of my favorite bands I've discovered in recent years that gets played on my show often is Fanny. Before the Bengals, the Go-Go's, or the Runaways, there was Fanny, the first all-female rock group with a multi-album major label contract. Sisters June and Jean Millington grew up in the Philippines before relocating to California in their early teens. In order to overcome their outcast status, they picked up ukuleles. When that worked and brought them high school popularity, they bought guitars. And unlike many young musicians, they really learned how to play them. The Millingtons toured extensively in the late 60s under the name The Svelts, until they were discovered by the secretary of record producer Richard Perry. With drummer Alice DeBoer and keyboardist-songwriter Nicky Barkley added, they became Fanny and released a string of amazing albums from 1970 to 74. Far from a gimmick, Fanny hobnobbed with the biggest groups in the industry and was a favorite tour partner because they took their musicianship so seriously. They continued to hone their skills while living and rehearsing in a Hollywood house christened Fanny Hill. Their critically acclaimed third album was named after that house and just celebrated its 50th anniversary. I was able to speak to three of the original members of the band. Nikki Barkley has long retired from the music industry and has only granted one interview in the last 40-some years. You can read that on FannyRocks.com which is run by my first special guest and favorite new friend, Fanny's drummer, Alice DeBoer. Hi there. Hey, hey. It's really great to talk to you. Like, I'm such a fan. Well, good. I'm glad. It seems to me that a lot of people are discovering Fanny just in the last couple of years. Yeah, since the Beat Club performance came up. I've been selling Fanny CDs and T-shirts on the FannyRocks.com site for six, seven, eight years, maybe. And I would ship once or twice a month after the beat club. I have between anywhere from seven to 20 orders a week. Awesome. Which is great. And the beat club, that's just what's on YouTube? Yeah. Okay, cool. Would love to be able to put out ourselves, but since we don't own the rights to our own music, we cannot do that.
they did in 1971 when we went to Germany to Bremen, they basically turned the cameras on and there's like a 35 minute concert. And then we went back in 72 and I had cut my hair. That's how I knew immediately that it was a different filming. And we are so much more relaxed. And I don't think I smiled once in the 71 filming, but I'm smiling and having a blast in 72. So we were much more comfortable as a band and as individual players. And it's cool. It's a lot of fun. You can definitely hear the growth of the band from album to album, especially over those first three, the poise of Fanny Hill, like after that, it seems like it was a lot of development in a short time. Yeah. And then Mother's Pride came along and we had a different producer who was Todd Rundgren, was into different sounds and Mother's Pride has been my favorite for a long time. I like Fanny Hill. I like Charity Ball. I never liked the first album until we started doing our podcast, May of 2020. And we started listening to pieces of songs and kind of dissecting them a little bit and talking about memories and this and that. And I gotta tell you, the first album now to me sounds probably the least produced Mm -hmm. of all of them. And I like it a lot better than I did.
I give us much more credit on the first album than I used to. Badge is one of my all-time favorite songs to play. I still love to play that song. Well, Ginger Baker parts are pretty cool. Somebody told me that they had shown the French television footage of Badge to Ginger Baker and that he was impressed. And I thought Ginger Baker was just way too busy all over the place. I was not a fan, mm-hmm. but I was pleased that he liked what I did on his song. Well, I think it's got to be flattering when someone interprets what you do and doesn't try to just over embellish it. You're not competing with him. You're interpreting him. Yeah. And I think that that's what we did with our cover songs. Mm -hmm. We made them our own by putting the fanny touch on it. You know, whether it was a bulldog with the Beatles and adding a verse or badge or special care, you know, ain't that peculiar. All of those songs that we did, we fanified them. I've definitely seen you comment about additional layers of saxophones and strings and things like that that are on some of those albums. The mariachi horns. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like, what, Richard? We don't need horns. You know, now I've talked to fans. Byron started out as a fan and he runs the website with me, fannyrocks.com. And he said, yeah, but Alice is a fan. That's all we knew. And the horns sounded fine to us. I said, well... I still hate the mariachi horns. They have no place in that song. I'm sure it's hard to argue with Richard Perry at that point. He was like a superstar producer. Well, he was not a superstar when we started. He was a staff producer at Reprise. And he became a super, superstar after Fanny, but much more well-known by Fanny Hill, Mm -hmm. working with Carly Simon and Harry Nielsen. He was the big deal by Fanny Hill, for sure. And it was always, you know, I hate to say it, men think they know everything. I mean, he used to go in and turn a guitar down. And I'm sure you've heard that story. If you haven't, June will tell you that she asked Jeff Emmerich, the Beatles engineer, you know, how do you get that sound from George? And he said, George gave me the sound and I mic'd it. End of story, you know. I've got to give Richard more credit than I used to give him. There was never, ever the suggestion that a studio musician would come in and play one of our instruments or even a vocalist come in and add strength to the vocals. Well, it wasn't necessary. You guys were really good. Eh, I think in the beginning, we were very naive, we were very young. We did not have our sound yet. When we recorded the first album, we recorded that album and it was done. And then we found Nikki. And Nikki changed everything. In the beginning, it was easy. It was right. You wouldn't leave me alone. Stay out all night. Now you got me wrong. Now I know the man's coming along. And I think I'm gonna change, change.
And we went back in and either added keyboard parts to the songs that we were going to keep or recorded Nikki's songs and added them to the album. And thank God, her songs, genius, amazing, amazing songwriter. She was not easy to get along with, but she was really, really amazing. I think back and she'd come in and she'd have written this song in her head, you know, maybe written the lyrics down and then she'd play it. And then we would get to add our parts, which is what I loved about Fanny is that I got to write and create that drum sound. Whatever the drum part was going to be, that was mine. And I listen to those albums now and the way that we meshed our sound by Fanny Hill and Mother's Pride. I mean, it is a band coming at you. It's not, you know, Brian Ferry and, and some backup guys. Do you know what I mean? So how did you get into playing drums in the first place? F. Stanley Davis was the choir master for the junior choir at my church growing up in Mason City, Iowa. And they had a shortage of drummers in the elementary school band system. And he was the band director for the elementary school band. He called my mom and he said, does Alice want to learn how to play drums? So I started playing drums in second grade and I went all through high school. When I was a junior in high school, I started my own all-girl rock band called The Women Ingenious, original name. <laughs> and uh, we played every weekend, and I finally didn't have to go to church every Sunday because I was out on the road on the weekends. And then after graduating high school, I had a little stint in the psych ward, courtesy of my mom, because I had come out as right. gay. I understand now why she did it, but packed my clothes inside my drums and headed to California. Sacramento, which happened to be where June and Jean lived, they had a note up on the bulletin board in a music store that they were looking for a drummer. I called, their sister answered, didn't give them the message. <laughs> so they went to Canada for three or four weeks or something and went through five drummers, mostly guys, I think. And when they came back, they called me and I auditioned and that was it. I bet. I bet they were excited. Yeah, they were. You have a pretty ferocious style, I feel like. Well, it's you great. know, I will take ferocious because I've been called a basher, which was not meant as a compliment. Yeah. I did play hard. To me, you know, I really want that bass drum right up your crotch. I really do. You need to feel it there. And I played hard. That's it. That's what you get, you know? So ferocious, yeah. Yeah, that's a good word. Thank you.
recording Fanny Hill. I remember George and Ringo coming down to the basement studio and Ringo walks in and he kind of bounces on his toes, you know, and they're little guys, you know, these little English Brits, these little Brits. They wanted to see what was happening in the basement. I didn't know this at the time, but Richard had been a drummer and he used to sneak out into the studio when he was doing sessions and tune people's drums. He never touched mine. I would have, the drumstick would have been painful. (laughs) And what playing do you do now? Very little. I am not hauling my Camcos out of storage to lug them to some gig and try to remember how to set them up. But I still have them. They still have the same heads on them that were on the drums when I quit playing with Fanny. And what do you want to do with them? I have no idea. I should probably donate them somewhere when I die. I imagine there's some museum that would want those or some young lady that could use them. Yeah, so I, that, I would give them to a young lady if she was really committed. Yeah, of course. You know how kids are. They start playing an instrument and a year later. They're, oh, I want to go play soccer. It came naturally to me, I guess. You know, I did learn the rudiments and I did the little practice sheets that you had to take home every week. How many hours or half hours or whatever did you practice this week? And I would do zero, 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 zero and have my mom sign it. And I'd fill it in with 30 I don't know if I ever got caught or not. If I did, they never said anything to me. But well, if you can play the parts, then how much you practice is somewhat negligible. Yeah. And in high school, I was first chair drums in band. So I was doing something right. I think that because of school band and symphony and orchestra and marching band, that one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four is so ingrained. I can't play jazz if my life depended on it. That, you know, that free form kind of stuff. I listened to Blind Alley. Listen to that drum part. I can't play it now. I don't remember what I played, but it was like, you know, it's it's that band one, two, three, four. 
whereas it could have been an offbeat maybe to throw a little something at it. I think that frequently that, hmm, that maybe would have been a good thing to have. I think it's going down in history the way it did. So thankfully it was recorded so well and it played so well. So I feel really, really lucky to have four studio albums and the one live CD that we took from a radio show that give a pretty good, well-rounded picture of Fanny from beginning to end. I don't consider rock and roll survivors Fanny. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a purist. And Fanny was the first four albums and the first four musicians. Makes sense to me. I mean, I think there's some cool songs on there, but the ones I like the most on that record are the ones Patty wrote. So to me, that's not a Fanny song. That's a Patty Quattro song. Well, I think that that band was a Patty Quattro band. June's leads are pretty spectacular. June. Oh, it's like I said to myself, where's my June? Where's my June guitar with Patty Quattro? So when my girlfriend said to me shortly thereafter, it's either me or the band, it was a very easy decision. All right, you wanted to talk about Fanny Hill. Sure. Um, it was an honor to record at Apple, number one. Can we talk about just kind of where the band was at leading up to making that record? We were touring. We were rehearsing. I mean, we never stopped. When we weren't touring and when we weren't recording, we were at Fanny Hill rehearsing eight to 10 hours a day, easily. It was recorded at Apple. Richard had an opportunity to go over there with us and record with Jeff Emmerich. It was recorded in two weeks. We were ready. We knew what songs we were doing. We had practiced them forever and ever.
Victoria, my wife and I are going to London March 16th. The film is showing at the biggest gay and lesbian film festival in London, England. Cool. How long have you been with Gloria? 28 years. That's like a thousand years. Yeah, in, in lesbian life. That's what I hear. We got married in our 26th year because we figured that a 25-year engagement was long enough. <laughs> You're you probably know? pretty secure at that point that it's going to work out. Yeah, yeah. And legally, we could get married. It makes the estate and, you know, whatever we have built here safe from basically her family. But we've got it all set up and... As we're getting older, I've started this new heart condition that is like, really? I've got atrial fibrillation, so my heart does this. Mm. And it's like, man, I'm still 22 years old playing drums. Stop that. Well, maybe drumming more often is good for you. Oh, I'm sure it would be. Can you imagine I'd get my core back? I mean, this two years have been hard on me, and I'm only 48, so I can only imagine. You've made this a lot of fun. I don't really take up more of your time now, but I hope that we'll stay in touch. All right, kiddo. Okay, you have a great one. Thanks for the wonderful time. Likewise. Fanny, The Right to Rock is a new feature documentary by filmmaker and Portland expat Bobby Joe Hart. It's currently on the festival circuit. You can see the trailer on YouTube, but I'd also suggest that anyone interested in Fanny check out the Beat Club footage that has also been posted there. Watching these women play live on film is a revelation. It is maddening to me that it took me so long to discover this incredible band and that they are still not a household name. The day after I spoke with Alice, I hopped on Zoom with the Millingtons. Guitarist June runs a girls' rock camp in Massachusetts called Institute for the Musical Arts. Her younger sister, Jean, played the bass. Normally, it might be tough to tell the two sisters apart simply by voice, but Jean suffered a stroke in 2018. Thankfully, she's been working hard on her recovery. Hi, June. We're all here. Woohoo! Yay, so cool to see you. I finally got to see the movie over the weekend. I loved it. Did you? Yeah, I mean, I wish it was three times longer. I feel like there's a lot of story to tell there, but I think it's done well and succinctly. And I know it's on the festival circuit right now, but I think once it makes it to a streaming service, you're going to really turn a lot of people on to the band. Well, I hope it Which really does make it to a streaming service. You know, it's been so long hanging on there. Oh, we're going to see it. We're going to see it. And nothing really happened yet. So I guess to start off with, leading up to the Fanny Hill record, you know, the band had done two major label albums with Richard Perry and had done a lot of touring. And I mean, the two of you had particularly done a lot of gigging together. But where was the band at, you know, mindset wise, leading up to the recording of the third album? I don't know how to answer that. I mean, all we were in the band, we were just always so focused on what can we do next? How can we make this happen? Because that was really the focus. So where's the band at? That's where we were. We were quite primed because we had done. Yeah. In that one year, I realized, because I've been writing about us, Fillmore West, Fillmore East, a lot of gigs on, on the West Coast. We were on The Tonight Show. We backed Barbara Streisand before we went to New York, back Barbara Streisand on two songs live in the studio, which is sort of glossed over somehow. I don't know how. And also we played at Carnegie Hall with the Quicksilver Messenger Service, which is a pretty weird gig in terms of sound. But also we played on Sonny and Cher on the Sonny and Cher show before even hitting London. That was just like February to whatever, no late November, plus a lot of other gigs. So I think for us, although, you know, we didn't really think of it per se, I'd say we were super prime because we had done all these gigs, 
all these TV shows, and we knew what to do. We we were already trained. I mean, that's the thing. When we hit London and you know met uh, Richard in the studio, and then started to work with Jeff Emmerich, he was completely flabbergasted to realize, hey, we knew what we were doing. I mean, we didn't think of it that per se, you know, because we worked so hard to get to that place. But we totally knew what we were doing. That blew his mind. He was so happy. His apple red cheeks got even redder. You know, I just wanted to squeeze his cheeks and kiss them. It was so cute. I mean, even the Beatles, they're great songwriters. But, you know, you watch those Get Back documentaries and you see they have to do like 75 takes of a song to get a keeper sometimes. And that's not where you were at. Well, we were in the beginning. And to give the Beatles a do, a lot of times they had just written sketches the day before or something that they might be interested in recording, you know? Yeah, that wasn't unusual in those days. Take 50, take 60, take 70. But by the time we got to Apple Studio, we were definitely very well trained and we worked really hard. We knew what we were doing. That's as, as far as I can take it. We knew what we were doing and that was a big deal because people expected us to fail. Was the name of the album already in mind when you went to record it? Jean, do you remember? I don't, I don't think so. I think okay. it sort of evolved, you know, after we did the album and we okay. thought about, well, how does it relate to, then we thought about our house that we had called Fanny Hill that was in Hollywood where we lived. And that, that was, a, it probably just came clear that it would be a good name for us with the album rather, Fanny Hill. That was a test tube for all our music and our, all our rehearsing and everything. Well, we hardly ever rehearsed out of that house. So it had the vibe and we really toughened ourselves and tightened up our sound in that house. I mean, I don't remember rehearsing Hey Bulldog at Apple because we'd already played it so many times live at a couple of clubs around L.A. Plus, we played it in the house. So we didn't need to mess around too much. Plus, Richard had already hired, I think it was uh, Paul Buckmaster, to write the strings. So he had already done that. So when we did the basic and the strings came in, I was so blown away. I couldn't believe stuff moved really fast like that. I mean, even we were surprised by what was happening. Hey, Bulldog was actually the first song I heard from you. And it just blew me away because, well, first off, I love that song anyway. Although I think it was something the Beatles kind of just wrote and recorded in a day. I think yeah, that those, there you go. Yeah. those those vocal takes of them howling at the end, there's video of them just doing that live like it's a like it's just a fun thing to do. And then that's what's on the record. Obviously, you had time to really interpret it and make it your own, add a verse to it, add all these arrangements. And it's just a really fiercely played interpretation. It's so great. Yeah, we didn't take the looseness as far as they did, but we had a certain looseness to it because uh, we were comfortable, right, Jean? I mean, she starts off with that bass thing, you know, and you're like, hey, there's something happening here. There's something going to be going on here, you know. She gives you that advance warning, thank God, because when Alice crashes in, we come right into your living room, like, bam, there we are. Fanny falls right in front of you. You, at least she'd given you a little clue.
Do you remember what made you gravitate towards that song in the first place? Let's face it, we just love the Beatles. You know, we were matriculating, shall we say, in the Svelts. The Beatles were our great teachers. And so it was sort of natural for us always to look for B-sides, like uh, Young and Dumb was a B-side for uh, Ike and Tina Turner. I don't know what the A-side was, but we found that. Young and Dumb, and, you know, we played our asses off on our fannies off on it. But, um... You know, hey, Bulldog was also sort of a sleeper, so we thought, hey, let's let's get into this and see what we can do. And we we got what they started. We got the vibe of what they started. And it was a little bit of uncomfortableness, you know. Some people say that whatever the words are, da, 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 you haven't got a clue. You know, it's sort of like nobody knows really where they are because they were so stoned, and we had to be stoned part of the time too. I mean. We can never say we didn't inhale, that's for sure. But I'm sure not as much as they did. My God, those guys were stoned. <laughs> I was actually curious whether the marijuana came in during the Svelts era. I mean, you were out on a rock tour circuit. Was that something you were exposed to then? Of course. Um, we smoke marijuana right after yeah, high school. Go ahead, Jean. Uh, I was just say, of course we did. But as I recall, none of us were really heavy into uh, drugs until cocaine. But... <laughs> Well, that's the 70s. I mean, there's no yeah, way around yeah. that. So much of it seemed normal, you know. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Jean. That's all I was going to say. It all seemed rather normal to have some, but none of us smoke excessively, as I recall. Because yeah. if, if you if you smoke and then you get high. <laughs> yeah. And if you're high, you know, you want to have control over what's happening in the studio. We didn't want to be just kind of crazy in the studio. We wanted to get the job done. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth. If you're stoned that much, you got to book a lot more time. And we didn't have that kind of money. I mean, that's the thing, you know, with girls, you got to be practical. Women and girls have to be practical. You know, if you're walking down a dark street in the middle of the night, don't walk down the sidewalk. Walk down the white line of the center of the street. That's practical. Recording without getting too stoned was practical because we wanted to get the job done. We wanted to have product. Heck, we probably needed to have product because the next tour was already booked. We weren't there for the mixes. But we were there for some of the overdubs, like Bobby Hall played percussion on Ain't That Peculiar. That was done in L.A., but she had played on the original Ain't That Peculiar, which I don't know if many people realize that. So that's an incredible connection. And then uh, Sneaky Pete came in. Again, this was in L.A. overdub and played Pedal Steel on Sound and the Fury. Yeah, so we played Pedal Steel on that. And we needed to get that stuff done before we hit the road. I'm glad you brought up Ain't That Peculiar, because that's also something that you had been playing live for a long time before that. So how did you decide to record it for this record? Well, I bet you we played the original dance version, right, Jane? When we yeah. were in the belts. I mean, we covered all that kind of Motown pop funk stuff, right? You, you were playing that slide guitar part. That was so incredible. And it sort of sold all of us on doing that song. Yeah. That was just hawking away. So, of course, it entered into the list for doing on the album. But that was the nature of our rehearsals. We jammed a lot. My guess is that slide riff came up, you know, just as a thing as I tried out and everyone, hey, that's really great. But even somebody like Skunk Baxter still talks about the sound of that. 
And a lot of people get blown away when they see the Beat Club version of us playing live. So, you know, that feels really good to me because it proves to me that our work and our adventurism, our musical adventurism, did play a part in our now success. It wasn't such a huge success back then. I saw someone write on, on YouTube, they saw the live version of that on Beat Club, and somebody made a comment, oh, at last, really good music. And then his next comment was, oh, that was 1971. <laughs> <laughs> so disappointed, you know. But hey, we could play that now if we wanted to, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we created it. We definitely created it. That was not imposed on us one single bit. That was a fanny creation, that arrangement and that sound.
amazing that at this point it has had over four million hits on uh, YouTube. I mean, people really like that song. It's amazing. <laughs> and June, of course, your guitar work has been phenomenal. People <laughs> going, and when you did it, we thought, ah, eh, no big deal. You know, we just, <laughs> we all took it in stride, never thinking, boy, that's really something else. You know, because at the time we were all just so focused on playing, yeah. Yeah. on doing the job. We were really interested in studying music and how certain things affected the audience. See, because we were playing for dance audiences. This was not pie-in-the-sky stuff. We would go to a club and play. If they danced, okay. We would move further on that arrangement, you know. So that was our litmus test, and it worked. That makes a lot of sense. So Blind Alley comes third, and I feel like this is one of the real Fanny hits, especially because of some of the live performances, like the Beat Club. I mean, I know Nikki wrote the song, but it's a scorcher. One thing that I know even now is I actually didn't care for the song that much because there wasn't that much for me to do, I felt. But I created, <laughs> this, <laughs> I created this huge sound around it, and that part on the outro, Blind Alley. That was really good. I'd forgotten all about that. But I found a letter that I was writing to my mom when we were mixing that album. And that song in particular, at the end of the album, everything was squashed in. And me and Alice and Jean were in the studio with Richard. And he had a timeline and he had to finish the album. And I was complaining to my mom, voicing both me, Jean, and Alice's complaint, which is that we didn't think that Richard was the right person to mix this song or this album because he just wasn't heavy enough. Well, we walked down on the hall in frustration. We were bored. And we hear some guy mixing and we walk in and he's doing a really good job. So we asked him, well, would he help us mix one song? And so he said, yes. So we went back to Richard. We asked him if we could mix one song without him. He was so freaked out by the time limit that he said yes. So me, Gene, and Alice mixed this with this, I don't even remember his name. See, because my guitar parts, you have to bring up certain parts of it to get the feel of what I'm doing. It's not a static part. Well, I got to do that. So for me, I really feel like that's in part what makes it such a great rock song because you can feel it all the way. You know, you can feel Alice's drum parts. And I think Alice asked her to sound like somebody falling down the stairs or something. And of course, Gene's like revving up the whole thing, you know. It's constantly steam going up in the air. So we managed to catch that.
I do agree that the live performances are so spirited and the studio recordings are very, very well produced, but obviously a little tamed. And Mm -hmm. that song kind of leaps out. And so that's really interesting to know that that's why, because you guys had more have a hand in it. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I asked Richard about that when I saw him a couple of years ago. I just point blanked him. I said, Richard, did you contain our sound or try to contain our sound? Because that's all you felt that people could take. He didn't say anything, but he just kind of looked at me and nodded. At least he acknowledged that that happened. You know, he did not have a defense for himself on that. But that's all I can think of. And we were so happy to be recording, you know, for the first year or two that we didn't really push back too much. But once we started to push back, we definitely had our point of view. (laughs) All I know is Blind Alley feels like a steamroller to me. Yeah. Chug Zonic, I'm a, become a fanny fan <laughs> at my age. <laughs> my guitar sound, it sounds like a big black thundercloud coming at you. You know, that was the intent. It's like, I, if you watch my right hand, I'm not doing a lot of movement. I'm just letting it roll out at you because I got the sound. <laughs> when you got the sound, less is more. You know, and this is where Jeff Emmerich helped you record louder than you had previously with uh-huh. Perry, right? That's right. That's right. I'm glad that happened. <laughs> well, believe you me, it was a horror show when you go to Miami trying to turn it down—a complete horror show because I'd freak out. I did not go gently into that good night. You know, you would be <laughs> feeling my sound. I mean, I'd be at like seventy, tr- turn it down to two and a half or something. It's like I don't know if you know what that feels like, but it's terrible. <laughs> And I've been working like, you know, with Lowell George and Skunk Baxter and Elliot Randall and all these great guitar players. We'd been honing our sounds, you know, playing with huge amps and trying different, you know, tubes and all that. And then he comes to my amp and turns it down. It's like it just didn't make any sense. Something I really appreciate about Fanny, it seems like lyrically you were all trying to convey it's not just a fantasy, you know, it's like this is our life and this is our experience. And you can really travel to that place by listening to the songs. Yeah, I mean, somebody posted a soul child today somewhere on Facebook. And, I, you know, I still really love that song. I love the arrangement. I love how funky we are. You know, I think Gene sang most of it. I mean, we stay out of each other's way and we do our thing, you know, we do our job. And I think that song's really effective and it's our words. You know, it's about a young woman. I think she's just going off to college and she's like all ready and raring to go. She's taking lots of chances and her parents are like, uh, 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 but they're still paying her college bill. You know, well, it's pretty much the same now. I think it's still really relevant still yeah. all the lyrics yeah. i can't believe how it's not outdated at all to, to me seems like a lot of fanny stuff seems like it could have just come out is not dated material at all at all yeah i mean the lyric about being on the pill it's crazy to think that it was 50 years ago mm-hmm. you better look out girl you gotta learn how to get along in this world i mean That is exactly what you would say to a younger woman or a friend or your daughter today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, They were instructions on life. How we wrote. uh, The lyrics, we were not frivolous kind of writers. We were very introspective about what we wrote was really meaningful to all of us. Mm -hmm. We didn't just throw out lyrics just for the hell, but we thought about everything we put out, you know. So I'm able to look at our stuff a little bit at a remove and have appreciation for what we were actually doing that most people could not hear at the time. 
I really appreciate your time and your music. Thank you so much. Well, you're so very welcome. Jean, you look really well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, considering yeah. everything. And yeah. we're now in our 70s. It's amazing. Yeah. We're still around. Yeah. If you enjoyed these interview excerpts, I'll be airing longer versions and more songs on my own show, The Heavy Metal Sewing Circle. Big thanks to Nina and Miranda at X-Ray FM for helping me shine a spotlight on Fanny. See you next Wednesday.